Lamentations, chapter 4. How the gold has lost its luster. Even the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones lie scattered in the streets. See how the precious children of Jerusalem, worth their weight in fine gold, are now treated like pots of clay made by a common potter. Even the jackals feed their young, but not my people, Israel. They ignore their children's cries like ostriches in the desert. The parched tongues of their little ones stick to the roofs of their mouths and thirst. The children cry for bread, but no one has any to give them. The people who once ate the richest foods now beg in the streets for anything they can get. Those who once wore the finest clothes now search the garbage dumps for food. The guilt of my people is greater than that of Sodom, where utter disaster struck in a moment and no hand offered help. Our princes once glowed with health, brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their faces were as ruddy as rubies, their appearances like fine jewels. But now their faces are blacker than soot. No one recognizes them in the streets. Their skin sticks to their bones. It is as dry and hard as wood. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Starving, they waste away for lack of food from the fields. Tender-hearted women have cooked their own children. They have eaten them to survive the siege. But now the anger of the Lord is satisfied. His fierce anger has been poured out. He started a fire in Jerusalem that burned the city to its foundations. Not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would have believed that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem. Yet it happened. Because of the sins of her prophets and the sins of her priests who defiled the city by shedding innocent blood, they wandered blindly through the streets so defiled by blood that no one dared touch them. Get away, the people shouted. You're defiled, don't touch us. So they fled to distant lands and wandered among foreign nature, nations, but none would let them stay. The Lord himself scattered them, and he no longer helps them. People show no respect for the priests and no longer honor the leaders. We looked in vain for our allies to come and save us, but we were looking to nations that could not help us. We couldn't go into the streets without danger to our lives. Our end was near, our days were numbered, we were doomed. Our enemies were swifter than eagles in flight. If we fled to the mountains, they found us. If we hid in the wilderness, they were waiting for us there. Our king, the Lord's anointed, the very life of our nation was caught in their snares. We had thought that his shadow would protect us against any nation on earth. Are you rejoicing in the land of Uz? O oh, people of Edom, but you too must drink from the cup of the Lord's anger. You too will be stripped naked in your drunkenness. O oh, beautiful Jerusalem, 
your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. But Edom, your punishment is just beginning. Soon your many sins will be exposed. Hi, Journey. It's great being with you here today. And if you're a guest with us or you're joining us online, welcome. We're excited to have you here. My name is Brandon Edwards. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And we're nearing the end of the season of Lent. We have one more week of Lent before Easter comes. And during this time, we are joining the worldwide church in this season of reflection and repentance in preparation for a true celebration on Easter. And this year for Lent, we're looking at the book of Lamentations. So today I'm going to review what we've been learning up to this point, and then we'll look at chapter four and help prepare our hearts for Easter. Now we're studying Lamentations because in our culture, we don't know how to lament. We don't handle loss or failure or death very well in our culture. And here's an example. I have a dear friend who I love. And when she was nine years old, her mom died of breast cancer. Their wake, the wake was on Christmas Eve. And afterwards, the parishioners of the church came to their family's house and they sang Silent Night for the family. And then when the parishioners left, her dad closed the front door and he turned to the kids and he said, we will not speak of this ever again. See, lament is usually looked down on in our culture. It's avoided. We don't usually want to learn how to do it well. We see footage from other parts of the world where people are moaning and throwing themselves at a casket and we think, that is primitive. What they're doing, I don't want to do that. But we, but we see in the scriptures that it's actually healthy because once you get it out there, it's no longer in there. And when we repress the hurt and the pain and we say things like, God's in control, all things work together, or there's a reason for everything, and we don't deal with it, we're just jamming down all these very human responses to things. Often at funerals, I'll hear someone say, there are no tears today. Now, I know that they're trying to focus on the fact that, that their loved one is with Jesus, but not no tears, because we just lost a person who has the image of God and is the image of God to us in our lives. And that's a real loss. It may be temporary, but it's still a loss. And so tears are welcome. Lament is actually necessary for our health and our well-being. And if we don't want to carry this heavy burden of loss around with us, we have to learn the, heart, the, the art of lament. Another example, plastic surgery, is this illusion that we can forestall aging in a culture that doesn't know what to do with aging or death. And so we don't know what to do, so we artificially delay having to face the fact that we're getting older. We need to change our view of lament. We see Jesus and the disciples and in Acts, the whole early church, participating in lament together as a community. So we're going to dive a little deeper into the art of lament today. Now, the book of Lamentations, the Hebrew word for that is ekah, which means 
If you were going to translate that directly, it means how, how, Lord, could this happen? Lament, Lamentations is a group of five poems. And if you were just reading it for the first time, you'd probably think, what is this about? But then if, as you look a little deeper beneath the surface, you see that there is a, a truth within it about pain and suffering and heartbreak. The original poems were written in Hebrew in response to the destruction of Jerusalem around 500 BC. The city of Jerusalem and the temple, the place where the Lord sat, the thing they valued the most, it's been smashed to pieces by the Babylonians and the people have been hauled away. And the few people that remain are in mourning. They're grieving this absolute and total devastation and loss of Jerusalem. In the poems, there are three main characters. The narrator, the woman who represents Jerusalem. She's the personification of Jerusalem. And then there's the strong man. But first, before we get into that, I'm gonna review what happens in chapters one through three, and then we'll talk about chapters four. And that'll, that'll set us up well to talk about chapter four. So first is the narrator, and he talks about the city. He starts out by just reporting on the city. She's been crushed by the Babylonians. Her people have been hauled away. And Lamentations 1 says, Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She was once great among the nations, and now she sits alone like a widow. So many men had died in Jerusalem in the war against the Babylonians that the writer is saying, she's like a widow whose husband has died. He goes on, once the queen of all the earth, she's now a slave. There's no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. The people of Jerusalem, they're now literally slaves to the Babylonians. And Jerusalem is like a queen who's become a slave. And it's not until nine verses into chapter one that the woman finally speaks, that Jerusalem says anything. And all she can muster is she says, Lord, see my misery. That's all she can get out. She's exhausted. She's been kicked around. And then she goes on. She says, Lord, look, she mourns, and see how I am despised. So first she talks to God, then she talks to the people around her. And she says, does it mean nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering? She just wants somebody to acknowledge her pain. Is any suffering like my suffering? Being wronged or being in pain is something that we can all relate to. Have you ever been betrayed by someone, by a friend? And then you try to talk to somebody else about it. You try and tell them what's, what you're going through. And right away, they just try and fix it. They just try and give you some solution. Have you ever had that happen? When my wife comes to me with a problem, a lot of the time, because I, I love her, I just want to fix it right away. But it's totally frustrating for her because she just wants me to listen and acknowledge what she's going through. Husbands, have you ever done that? Other times, it's an illness, and you want someone to witness to your pain. Ugh, I can't imagine how hard that is. That must be so hard, what you're going through. The woman is just wanting acknowledgement that her feelings are legitimate, but no one around her is acknowledging her. Not the narrator, not the people around her. 
And this is really important. This is one of the first points that we find today is we need people to acknowledge what we're going through. We need people to acknowledge what we're going through. And it's particularly important and relevant for Lamentations because in Lamentations, God is silent. God doesn't speak in the whole book of Lamentations. Kathleen O'Connor says, God never responds in Lamentations, but the book itself becomes a comforting witness. It's a house for sorrow and a safe place for our tears. It honors voices of loss, pain, and despair. It mirrors pain back to those who suffer and in the process brings them out of isolation and into community, even if only briefly. In the poem, it's the other characters that acknowledge what's happened to Jerusalem. Their acknowledgement of Jerusalem's pain is the beginning of healing and hope. She says, is any suffering like my suffering? Is any pain like my pain? Because when you're going through it, oh man, it is the worst. But have you ever had somebody try and minimize your pain? They try and minimize what you're going through. They'll say something like, oh, that's nothing. Brandon, it could have been worse. You lost one finger, you could have lost all your fingers, man. Or have you heard this? At least you still have a roof over your head. Still got a roof over your head. Or my favorite, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It minimizes. Minimizing doesn't help. It makes them feel maybe a little better, but doesn't help the person that's receiving it. They're trying to say, oh, it's not that bad. And you're thinking, speak for yourself. This is me. This is my life. It's easy for you to say that. This isn't your life. The woman is saying, is there any pain that's like my pain? Any suffering like my suffering? Because when we suffer, we feel alone. No, like, we feel like no one can really understand what we're going through. And that's partially true because no one has gone through exactly what you're going through because you're unique and your circumstances are unique. Other people may have gone through something similar, but it's also different because it's happening to you and it's right now. And that makes you feel alone. Yes, other people may have lost a job. They may have been betrayed and suffered the same way as you, but at the same time, it's you. And it's your life. And that's the paradox of suffering. For example, someone may have lost a parent. People, other people have experienced that loss, but they didn't lose your parent. And what you're going through is unique and you feel alone. And that's this paradox at the heart of suffering and at the heart of loss and heartache and pain is millions of people have suffered the same things you've suffered, but the way it's happening to you right now is unique. And it's only happening to you so you feel alone. When we're hurting, we feel alone. And the beginning of community is just having someone acknowledge what we're going through. But at first, no one acknowledges Jerusalem. Up to this point, the narrator has stayed objective. He's standing at a distance. He's been the reporter on the scene just telling what has happened to Jerusalem, giving details. But then he goes through all of chapter one and then the beginning of chapter two and finally he can't stand it anymore. And he says in verse 11 and 13, I have cried until the tears no longer come. The narrator says, my heart is broken for what's happened and what I've seen 
And then he says this amazing thing to the woman, to Jerusalem. He says, he's trying to meet her in her pain. And he says, what can I say for you? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. About that, one writer said, contrary to what people think, the key to easing people's suffering is not in offering some insidious theological answer to suffering, but in allowing space for people to mourn and to meet others who know what it is to have been burned by that black sun. This is not about providing an answer, but rather offering a site where we can speak our suffering. This may seem a little depressing, but such spaces are really sites of liberation and light. Creating space for lament really brings freedom into the dark places in our lives. What they're essentially saying is, look, will somebody just look and see, is any pain like my pain? And what they need is somebody to just say, oh, your wound is as deep as the sea. And that's where we start to see the first ray of hope and light and healing for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So chapters one and two, we've heard from the woman, Jerusalem, and the narrator. And then chapter three, we meet the third character, the strong man. He says, I am the one who has seen the affliction. It's not a woman, it's a man. In Hebrew, the word is geber. Let me hear you say geber. It's like a military strong man. It's a defender of the weak, the widow, the orphan. It's a strength term. So the strong man shows up, the third character in chapter three. And remember, the first thing the woman said, when she first speaks, she says, Lord, look at my affliction. It's all she can say. And what's the first thing that he says? I am the one who has seen the affliction. It's like he's fresh from the scene of the battle. And he says, I've seen it. You're not alone. It's this amazing act of solidarity with Jerusalem. And he says, I've seen the affliction. And then he goes on, and this is where it changes. It all changes because now he gets, he's really angry and he, and he starts ranting at God. And he says, God has led me into darkness. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. And then he has these illustrations. He says, he broke my nose. He has walled me in. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has made me, I might as well be dead. And then in verse 16, he says, he has made me chew on gravel. The strong man is furious. He lets God have it. Here's what God's done to me. Let me tell you what he's done. He's made me depressed. He has brought me into despair. He has crushed my soul. He's essentially making a scene which is really interesting because back in chapter two, the narrator told the woman to make a scene. He said, cry aloud before the Lord, beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Then we see in chapter three, the strong man shows up and he makes a scene. And amidst, in the midst of all this anger and frustration, he has hope. In verse 21, he says, and this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the midst 
of this pain and anger and rage and betrayal is this contradictory experience because he's saying it sits side by side with this hope. I know who God is and I'm resting in this hope. This is horrible. And that's the paradox of suffering. Pain, anger, frustration, and hope. That's chapter three. Hope right next to rage and despair. He has this memory of God's faithfulness. He knows it was God's judgment on Jerusalem because of what they'd done and what the leaders had done. They had been rejecting God and he'd been warning them for hundreds of years. He had been warning them. And then God finally brings his judgment, allowing the Babylonian army to invade and destroy Jerusalem. But the strong man is still angry about it. He's angry at the same time that he has hope and he believes that God's mercy will come back. And then that sets up chapter four that we're looking at today, the fourth poem. And it starts out, Lamentations 4.1, how the gold has lost its luster. We're back to the narrator. And the gold has become dull. Gold doesn't get dull. That's the best part about gold. It's awesome. It doesn't oxidize. It just stays shiny. The sacred gems are scattered all over the street corners. How, how the precious children of Zion, they were once worth their weight in gold. Now they're just considered pots of clay that can be broken. How the gold has lost its luster. It's a very different tone from chapter three. Chapter three is raging against God, tethered with hope. Chapter four is this poem that's more like an exhale. It's more like, ugh, resignation to what's happened. Now, there's something going on here that I want to show you. And you don't see it in the translation as well. But in the verse, first chapter is 22 verses, okay? And it's an acrostic. We've talked about this. It's an acrostic poem starting with every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A through Z. 1 through 22. And then chapter 2, same thing. A through Z of the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter is Aleph. There's the first verse. Sec second verse, first letter is Bet. Third verse, Gimel. Fourth verse, Dalet. It goes through those. Then, in the third chapter, it begins with, it has 66 verses. So it's tripled them from 22 to 66. And, and it's in three verse sections. So the first three verses start with the letter. It's still an acrostic. Aleph, Aleph, Aleph. Verse four, Bet, Bet, Bet. So it goes through that. And what's happening, what what writers believe with that poetry is that it's an example of why they think he's venting. He's saying it three times. He's, he's saying it emphatically. And he uses the whole alphabet in the acrostic poems. Chapters one through four are all acrostic poems. And the reason they are A to Z in the Jewish alphabet is because it's signifying the enormity of suffering. It's this vast universe of pain from A to Z. Nothing could be added to it. It cannot get any worse. That's chapter three with the strong man. It's emphatic. Then the fourth chapter, we're back to 22 verses and they're a little shorter. And there's this exhale. There's not as much to report. I've said it. I've acknowledged the things that have changed. They're never going back to how they were. As one writer puts it, it's this resignation to the reality of God's judgment on them. You remember the scene in Forrest Gump 
where Forrest and Jenny are on a walk and Forrest is so happy she's back and, and, and they, they suddenly find themselves in front of her old house where she'd been abused her whole childhood by her dad. And all of a sudden, she just starts yelling and screaming and throwing rocks at the house and she's trying to break the windows and, and Forrest is like, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. And at the end, she throws all the rocks that she can find, and then she just falls into a heap, and she's crying. And there's nothing left. All of her energy is spent. That's chapter four. How the gold has lost its luster. Maybe you've been there before, or you're there now, or you know someone who's in that place. Well, during this time, the poet speaks about several things in chapter four. Verse five, he says, those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie in ash heaps. Our princes once glowed with health, brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their faces were as ruddy as rubies and their appearance like fine jewels. But now their faces are blacker than soot. No one recognizes them in the streets. Their skin sticks to their bones. It's as dry and hard as wood. Something's changed. It's the status of princes, and they are not even recognized in the streets. Verse 5 says, those who once ate delicacies are now destitute. And what he's speaking there is he's speaking about economic collapse. There was once a way that our economy worked and that we viewed things. Those who could afford to eat delicacies ate them, but now it's different. It's not how it used to be. The economy has suffered a blow. Things have changed, and we don't know what to do. He goes on and says, not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would have believed that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem, yet it happened. So they're saying we live with the sense that our city couldn't be conquered. We were Jerusalem. We weren't vulnerable to certain outside forces. And then the foundations of everything we knew, the way we understood ourselves, were just yanked away. The rug was pulled out from under us. And now our compass is all over the map because the impenetrable Jerusalem has been crushed. So we can extract a couple things from this. The first one is that loss is change. The poet here is saying, we have lost all these things and there's change. This is the morning after. Things are different than they used to be. Now, there's just a little bit of space for him and the poet is starting to adjust. Things aren't gonna be how they were. Loss is change. And when you lose something, there's a profound change that happens. And you have to lament it. You have to acknowledge it and speak it or you just stay in that place. Now, you can also flip this around. Change is loss. Change is a form of loss, even if change is good or necessary. It's still a loss. How many of you parents, when you're like me, when you're young parents, and you see your kids in your photo albums, and you celebrate just how perfect and above average they are. They're just wonderful. And then when you get older, you look at the photo album and from several years ago and there's this, let's be honest, like sadness. And you say things like, parents, finish this sentence for me. Oh, they grow up so fast. Yes, I would argue that's lament. And the thing about it is we're not equipped for it. We're like, it's good. I don't want my child to stay 13 forever. I see that he needs to grow up. 
but we have these counterintuitive impulses because there's this sense of not wanting them to grow up. And what is that? Change is a form of loss. They aren't three anymore. They aren't six anymore. They aren't 16 anymore. It's a form of loss and we have to properly lament it or those emotions just get repressed and then they come out in an unhealthy way. Now, my wife and I have four kids and they're growing up and I hate it. I really like don't like that they're growing up. It's hard for me. It's hard to adjust. And I have to constantly lament that change. But it's not something we often talk about, change. Even good change. You got promoted. You're not in that particular cubicle farm anymore. And there's a sense like, sweet, corner office, I got a promotion. is good for the organization too. This is good. It's a good thing all around. But you're, you're no longer next to that person who was on your left or that person who was on your right for 13 years. Now, you may be gaining something and it may be good, but that doesn't mean you're not losing something at the same time. And it's totally healthy and proper and human to, have, to give it the proper lament that it deserves. Now, for years, I've had this, let's go, let's go, let's go. Come on, we're growing. Especially around Journey. I remember when we first launched Journey we were going like crazy and I was so excited. It was so fun. And I remember my wife and I had just gotten married and she was sitting on her mom's couch and, think, and she said, what happened? Now, I felt that way and, I, and it's only recently that I've, I've realized like, oh, there might be another perspective. And others have been like, slow down, oh, innovative one. And I've, I've resisted. I've been like, what is your problem? Come on, this is good. It's a good thing. Let's go, let's go. And I'm realizing that sometimes when people seem resistant to change, what they're actually doing is they're in touch, they're in tune with what's happening around them. And it's not that they're totally resistant to change. They're just properly lamenting and letting go of things so that when they get to the next place, they're like my wife. There's not unfinished business back there. They're able to deal with it. And they're like, whoa, this could take some time to get used to. When, when I'm thinking, come on, just get with it. This is good. You're right. Yes, it's a good thing. They're not saying it's not. But it's change. And change is a form of loss. And that's what we have here with the poet. How the gold has lost its luster. Things are different. The dollar isn't what it used to be. There's change, and with that is loss. One final thought in chapter four. Notice at the end of Lamentations 4.22, he says, oh, beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. In this fourth poem, what the narrator is saying is, it can't get any worse. It cannot get, it's been A to Z in how bad this is. Nothing can be added and when you hear people say something like, it can't get any worse, or what's the worst that can happen? Whenever you hear that language, you should immediately listen very carefully because when we're able to name the pain that it can't get any worse, you've just created a tiny space for hope and the future. Somebody who's lost their job, well, what's the worst that could happen? I could lose my job again? It's already happened. That's someone who's in a very interesting place 
Because when the worst that could happen can ha- has happened, then there's this certain freedom present. Well, if the worst that's happened has happened, it can't get any worse. There's a tiny sliver of hope. Right now, there are people around you who are suffering. You probably know someone who's suffering. Pay attention because when it gets bad, that's also when space opens. When somebody's lost everything, there's nothing more to lose. And that creates new possibilities. When you've lost your job, it's a time where you ask, so what do I really want? If the slate's been wiped clean and you have a new tomorrow, what's that tomorrow? If the old is gone and you're not at that job anymore, what now? What now is a terrifying question, but it's also filled with all sorts of what? Hope and expectation. And that's what's happening here. All this horrible stuff. Now what? If it can't get any worse, pay people, and people are saying that, pay very close, very close attention to that because there's something there. For this season of Lent leading up to Easter, I just have one question for us. Is there any sort of change that you've never properly lamented? It's in there, this grief and mourning. Is there any sort of change that you've never properly lamented? And in this Lent season, it's a time to properly lament it. Talk to someone who listens. And then do that so that you can move on to a place of healing. How this has helped me as a husband and a dad and a friend is it's helped me to remember to listen to what the person is saying. And then try to witness to their pain first. That must be tough. You're essentially listening to the pain behind the pain. I can't imagine how difficult this is. And I've noticed I've listened I've listened differently because I'm listening to the thing they're really saying. Now, sometimes they just want help. They're just like, can you please get me a website or a book or a scripture recommendation? Come on, Brandon. But other times at the it's at this level of spirit that you're trying to discern, do they need solutions or are they looking for solidarity? Are they essentially saying, look, Will somebody see, is any pain like my pain? And what they need is someone to just say, oh man, your wound is as deep as the sea. And that's where we start. They don't need you to get out your tool kit and all your solutions. They just need you to sit with them. And it's revolutionary. That's what Jesus does for us. He knows our pain. He came down to be with us. He walked with us, among us. And he knew our pain. He knew our temptation. He knew change. He had loss and hardship. And when he was on the cross, he bore all our sin, all our failure. And he alone knows and can understand everything that we're going through because he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And as we lament, as we respond to change, whether it's good or bad change in our life, he's there. He's our healer. And he invites us into that healing as a community. He invites us to walk with him during Lent, to remember and to respond to all that's happened in our lives and to take it to the cross. Let's pray. God, we bring our change and loss before you and we bring all this in this kind of big jumble and we ask that the resurrected Christ give us guidance and wisdom. 
We want to turn pain into poetry and be free of the despair that comes with assuming, I guess it's just supposed to be this way. We think of this beautiful line that the gold has lost its luster and how this poem begins with the realization that things aren't going to be how they are and it ends with a sort of hope. We ask you in this Lent season and in the midst of change and trauma and tragedy and the ground shifting beneath our feet that we can become those safe friends who listen and acknowledge other people's pain. And we ask for the resurrected Christ to guide us and lead us into this. And in the strong name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.